Hello, this is Peter Levesque. Welcome to Episode 10 of the Knowledge Exchange Podcast. This podcast series is a product supported by the Canadian Council on Learning, Canada's leading organization committed to improving learning across Canada and in all walks of life. I want to thank the great staff at CCL for their efforts with this project to advance our understanding of effective knowledge exchange to improve the learning of Canadians. You can download this episode as well as one of 10 future episodes in the series from my website at www.knowledgemobilization.net. From iTunes directly, just search for KM Podcast. Alternatively, go to knowledgeexchange.podomatic.com. HIV-AIDS is an area of health recognized as a leader in moving research results into practice and policy. Increasingly, people like Dr. Rob Travers are helping to further transform organizations that have been funders of knowledge creation into active knowledge mobilizers. This interview provides great insight into the internal and external challenges of becoming an agency of knowledge mobilization, the rewards and challenges, and the personal benefits of those involved. Rob is a man who inspires others to move forward. As we learn, we live, is the lesson I take from this conversation. I'm here at 1300 Young Street in Toronto with uh, Rob Travers. Mm -hmm. Rob, why don't you um, introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about what you do. Okay. I'm Rob Travers. I work here at the Ontario HIV Treatment Network, which is um, an organization that's funded by the Ontario Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care to to do a number of things. That uh, we, have a, we have a long mission statement, but I'll, I'll kind of break down what it is we do, and then I'll talk a little bit about how I fit into that and, and how that's actually shifting and how that's timely for this interview, actually. So, so essentially, we're an organization that, over the last several years, has transformed itself from being, I think, simply a funder of HIV research to being much more of a, a knowledge mobilizer, an organization that still principally funds research, but also helps to build partnerships and create opportunities for exchange of knowledge between various stakeholders that work in the HIV field. In the HIV sector, community people are, I think, at the very forefront of everything that we do. Right? And by community people, I primarily mean people living with HIV and communities at risk and organizations that work for them and on their behalf. A lot of what we do and what I do in my job is forge and build partnerships between community people and researchers. My position title is Director of Community-Based Research, and I'm also a research scientist on staff, so I spend about 50% of my time actually doing research. That's community-based, so where we see uh, community people Academics and increasingly policymakers at the table in different uh, in different studies focused on various marginalized communities that might be at risk of HIV. So I work with people as diverse as people living with HIV to a couple of new studies that we're building uh, right from the ground up that are focused on Muslim people in Greater Toronto, <coughs> uh, LGBT newcomers. I work on research with transgender people, with sex workers, uh, uh, a variety of different, okay. very marginalized populations. And then the other 50% of my time, so that's actually doing research, the other 50% of my time I help, I do, I, I build partnerships. And over the last couple of years I've been involved in some very important endeavors related to knowledge dissemination, like the development of a CBR newsletter that was focused on the HIV field, some think tanks that were focused on different kinds of populations. And then as, as an organization, we're year two of a five-year strategic plan. We're now shifting in the directions of um, really ramping up KTE initiatives and figuring out how do, we, how do we rejig programming to make sure that stakeholders of various sorts get the information they need to make decisions better. 
that's the fundamentally what knowledge exchange is, is, mm-hmm. is about, and, and that's why I wanted to talk to you about this. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the ways that CCL has been talking about knowledge exchange and knowledge mobilization is bringing people and evidence together to influence behavior. Yeah. I mean, how is that working out in the AIDS-HIV world? So when I think of this new framework that we're implementing in the organization, it's a knowledge-to-action framework. Okay. And we're looking, building on the, uh, the work of the Canadian Health Services Research Foundation, we're looking at everything we do, and we're looking at the acquire, assess, adapt, and apply framework that they use. We did a, a study of aid service organizations in Ontario looking at their capacities for knowledge uptake, uh, especially across those four domains, and found that most of what they can do is really at the acquire and assess level, and most of, funnily enough, of what we've been doing has been at that acquire and assess level as well. So over the last couple of years, we've been really critically thinking, and especially over the last six months, about how do we do things differently that bring people together in different kinds of um, scenarios where more of the adapt and apply stuff can start to happen. So that means looking at things like our, our annual research conference, for example, where we bring together 600 stakeholders, mostly from Ontario, but often from other parts of Canada, together to showcase research that we support or fund. And increasingly, we're shifting the focus of that conference to offer not only your standard kinds of push or dissemination activities like oral abstract sessions or posters, but this year we're looking at doing things like research cafes, for example, where there's 10 or 12 different subject areas or topic areas that we're going to have key discussions being led in by experts in those different fields. So that might be something on gay men's interventions or microfinance for HIV-positive people. It's more and more at the success of the think tanks that we pulled together over the last two years. We've had, I think, three or four, one on needle exchange programs, one on mental health, one on housing. And at those think tanks, we invite literally a hand-picked audience of about 60 people from policy, service, research, consumer, stakeholder groups, and bring them together. So let's take mental health for an example. So there's a, there's a problem in the mental health and addictions uh, sector in the HIV sector where if you're a person living with HIV who has an addiction, you're bounced back and forth between various, they don't talk to each other. Decisions are being made about you here and are being made about you here. You're making decisions about yourself as a consumer about where to go, but nobody's actually talking to each other in those sectors. So the goal of that think tank was to pull together all of these different stakeholders to get them talking about how do we provide better services, you know, how do we build bridges between these two sectors, provide better services, affect policy change, and actually get some research off the ground that can address some of the needs that people have, whether it be health services research, looking at how we can better organize services in some particular area or barriers to services in another area, or actually look at testing on some interventions, you know, that could work with various people. So everything we're doing, we're kind of standing back, I would say, with this KTE critical eye and saying, so what? What's changing? Is anything changing? Is anybody actually using what we produce or help to produce to actually make decisions for people. The other thing that we're doing, I think that's kind of, it's quite innovative, I think, yet in some ways it's very simplistic and reasonable, is as a funder, we're starting to say to the people that we support, you know, what practical application does your work have for people on the front lines? So you know the whole standard way of doing a research poster or an oral abstract background, methods, results, findings, we've shifted that now to what was the problem, what did we do, what did we find, and what are the implications for policy and practice. So we have this kind of new thinking about how to, about how to do all of these things that fits into this knowledge-to-action framework. And I think it's new for us. It's interesting to watch the shift as an organization in terms of the cultural shift. So we have some new staff that have joined, a couple of KT coordinators. One's a, a director of KT, one's a manager. They all come on in the last, let's say, 
well, some are still coming on, last two to four weeks, right? So there's this kind of cultural shift happening where we're, we're now starting to say, well, you know, community-based research won't be this giant focus anymore. It'll be one tool right. of KTE. It won't be an entire focus of the organization anymore. It was kind of developing into this big focus. So, what, so what's supporting that? I mean, one of the things that I've heard in the conversations with other people is that when you have this shift, for the mm. shift to be successful, you need sets of in incentives to affect behavior, and then you need an infrastructure to kind of support it. What does mm. that look like in this context? People need information to make decisions, right? Right. Whatever whatever stakeholder role they're playing, whether it's a policymaker, service provider, a person living with HIV, and we know that evidence isn't always what's used to make those decisions. You know, so I'm struck by people who told me they work at the AIDS Committee of Toronto. They use that AIDS service organization as an example. Phenomenal organization, does incredible work. They have the largest publicly funded AIDS library in North America. And two full-time staff librarians. A dream come true for somebody who's working in HIV research, right? People in the organization, though, and this may have changed, but this was a, about a year and a half ago I had this conversation, actually don't use the stacks. They don't use the journal stacks in the organization. So they're doing counseling and prevention work based on some other kind of knowledge base, which is probably uh, a valid knowledge base. It could be based on lived experience or what they're seeing on the front lines. But they're not using evidence, you know, that kind of more hardcore evidence that we think about in research to inform the programming. Well, expand about that, because that's actually one of the, the, the my, my questions, is when you hear the word evidence, when you use evidence, what do you mm -hmm. mean? There's what, there's what it means, and <laughs> what I'd like it to mean. Right? There's a difference. <laughs> what it means globally, when I think of it, is uh, we had this discussion yesterday, one of my colleagues and I, where he wrote in a funding application, you know, that we're going to use scientific, we're going to, the advantage of this grant is it's going to have scientific data plus uh, personal experiences. And I said, what's the scientific data? And he said, well, the quantitative survey data. And I said, what's the personal experiences? And he said, the qualitative data. I said, isn't the qualitative data scientific evidence as well? And so we had, ended up having this big philosophical discussion about what is knowledge, right? And, and it was based largely on a kind of difference between what our own personal opinions might be as researchers versus what policymakers might seek out in determining the credibility of different forms of knowledge. So I look at it as, in the field I work in, the kind of um, the wisdom that's brought from the front lines, the wisdom that's brought from lived experience, comes together with the, the tools we bring as researchers. And if we can find methods to actually illuminate that and bring it together into something that's meaningful and coherent and, and has some kind of um, change purpose to it, to me that's evidence, that's sound evidence. Okay. Let me make a jump between evidence and knowledge exchange and knowledge to action to the concept of lifelong learning. You know, learning about how to cope with HIV is critical yeah. to extend your life. And so the concept of lifelong learning in this mm. context is really interesting. Yeah. The Canadian Council on Learning has been trying to create a context and a culture of lifelong learning. In this environment, what does that mean? In HIV? Yeah. For somebody living with HIV, if I were to speak on their behalf. Well, HIV is very interesting, right, in that, you know, pre-Vancouver 19... 96, the International AIDS Conference, which you know, I, I, some people call it the protease moment, right, where, where all of a sudden there was hope on the horizon. It was the first time at an international conference where they were talking about, you know what, we, we may actually not be close to a cure, but we may be close to a pathway that could see AIDS going from this uh, acute illness to something that was more, like, more akin to a chronic manageable illness. So people living with HIV, I think, had to make this almost reconstruct 
their lives or put them back together and go from thinking, I'm an individual dying, to I'm an individual who will likely live 20 or 30 more years, depending on my social circumstances. So, you know, we also know pretty well from research that if somebody living with HIV is chronically unemployed or living in poverty or is a new immigrant or is from an endemic country or experiences other kinds of social exclusion or racism, their lifespan is going to be affected and the quality of life during that lifespan is going to be adversely affected as well. But in terms of lifelong learning, I think there's, there was this drastic shift from, you know, how do I die with dignity in the, with this illness to how do I live with something that's chronic and it's going to be quite challenging over time? And how do I become a consumer of knowledge, right? So one of the things that strikes me about people living with HIV, when I think about lifelong learning and knowledge, is just how wise they are and how much knowledge they take in and... and how connected they are to these networks of knowledge. Often it could just simply be a group of peers that see the same infectious disease specialist, right? see the same AIDS doc, but they talk to each other. They talk to each other about the efficacy of new treatments and how long they'll last and this kind of testing and that kind of testing. And I'm amazed, actually. I think it must be, it must be at times a nightmare being a physician in those, in those scenarios where you have to respond to what actually is a, a fairly sophisticated group of consumers when it comes to learning and, and demanding and wanting knowledge. There's a hunger for it with them. So learning process that they engage in as individuals and then collectively as this community of people yeah. that are dealing with some of the same issues is, is really is, is quite powerful because Very. as they learn, they live. Yes. What it's also done, though, just building on what you're saying, is it shifted the way we provide services and think about service. So we don't think about service anymore in this field as a you know, kind of psychosocial counseling for people. That happens, of course it does. It's not the primary game anymore. Before it was, it was kind of counseling people toward death, right? And doing prevention-oriented work with people that were still HIV negative. Now, services become about giving people knowledge. Okay. Getting them knowledge to make decisions about their health. 